What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Can you also introduce yourselves so that we know whose voice we're hearing? Robin, they, them. Jordan, she, her. In our final bonus episode, we want to bring you something different. A personal look at what it's like to be part of America's first official Antifa chapter, Rose City Antifa. Jordan and Robin are members of RCA, a group we heard just a little bit about in episode one. Sean Kellier wasn't a member. Like many protesters, he didn't work within any organized group. But like Sean, Robin and Jordan's work as anti-fascists is a defining part of their lives. Is, is there something we didn't ask that you were like, uh, and, and, and some of that like, really you've been wanting to say no one's asked. How are you doing? Yeah, nobody, <laughs> no one asked. nobody asks how Robin's doing. That is the thing with a lot of times where we are asked to do press interviews is that it's not a very humanizing experience. And I think that can come from both sides of being like, oh, you're really like the heroes on the front lines of this brave thing that you're doing, or, oh my God, you're such radical, no-do-gooders that are just- Marxists. Yeah, like the scary people that are just breaking windows. And I think that we are just people who believe profoundly that the world can be better. And in all other aspects, I would consider every person that we work with a pretty normal person. From Something Else and Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line Dying for a Fight. I'm Serge Olmos. Back in the 80s and 90s, racist skinhead groups started organizing around the country. In response, anti-racist organizations and countergroups started popping up. The punk music scene became the front line for clashes between these two ideologies especially in Minneapolis, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Portland. Those clashes died down some in the mid-90s, but never completely stopped. In 2007, one flare-up in Portland inspired some anti-racists to take on a form of activism popular in Europe in the post-war period, anti-fascism. A neo-Nazi skinhead group called the Hammerskins was planning a music festival in Portland and a bunch of community organizers came together to oppose it. After the music festival was successfully shut down, the organizers decided that there was an ongoing need for dedicated anti-fascist organizing and founded Rosity Antifa. Most people would pretty comfortably say that they are against Nazis, they don't like fascism, but they aren't going to do a whole lot to actually make sure that it can't take root. For us, anti-fascism is when someone sees that people are trying to make fascism happen, whether in politics or like in their social subcultural scene or something else, and does something for the express purpose of preventing that. So we are one group of anti-fascists who have decided that we want to work together to do this. There are other anti-fascist groups, even in Portland. We're just the one with the website. People send us like a, a statement of interest that they want to be a part of our group. And we do have an onboarding process, just like any other group that you would want to join does. And 
the purpose of that is to make sure that we trust each other. And then because we are so security focused, like at the end of the day, like the trust in each other is all we have. Rose City Antifa became well known during the Trump presidency, in part because it has a website and it's more public facing than other anti-fascist groups. They sometimes give interviews with the media like they did with us. Rose City Antifa's work can involve researching and releasing info on right-wing extremists. It can also mean direct confrontation with far-right groups when they show up on the streets of Portland. But those confrontations, they look different depending on who comes out. We have a public call out for our allies to join us in numbers in public to show that we are a united front against fascism. We reach out to different groups in the area that we think also would be willing to bring people out to oppose the rally. Sometimes that's a group like Pop Mob, who we've worked with a lot, and their whole thing is trying to bring out as many people as possible by trying to make it fun and bring attention to how, like, fascism ultimately is a pretty ridiculous ideology. There was one protest where they encouraged people to wear those, like, inflatable T-Rex suits and have a party and like dance with each other and wear like bright colors and bring silly string, things like that. So it's it, it comes out of joy and silliness, but is ultimately for the purpose of community self-defense. Right, and to speak to drowning them out with noise on, I believe, August 27th, 2019, they brought out a brass band that dressed in banana costumes and they were both playing music so that we could all have a good time and enjoy ourselves so people are more likely to come out next time. And also with the idea that it's going to be a lot harder for them to do recruiting if they can't hear each other talk. That tactic of using humor is just one part of their response to fascism. We're a militant group against fascism. So we're trying to physically hold the line against the groups that we're concerned could really hurt people. We try really hard to keep them distracted from other people that might be opposing them that they might want to target, keep them distracted from talking to each other, and just generally try and make it as inconvenient as possible to actually do what they are trying to do. Rose City Antifa members are serious about what they call holding the line. They don't want to cede ground to right-wing extremist groups And sometimes you can see videos of them online where they're in physical fights with groups like the Proud Boys. Do you think it's scary to be like, I'm going to go downtown and stand there in front of these people? Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's really scary. (laughs) I wish that we didn't have to do it. It's not my favorite thing to do with my Saturday afternoon. People don't really, they don't know what a toll it can take of opting into viewing like hateful images and absorbing racist rhetoric and putting yourself in really scary situations. Like one of the rituals that I have before I go to an action is like going through my phone and telling the people that I love them just in case. And that's something that I hope is never the last thing that I say to those people, but I know that's a possibility, but being scared To do this work is not a good enough reason not to do it. Right after an action, are you sitting in your car? Are you listening to music? After an action, what I like to do is I like to put on my pajamas and make sure there's no 
chemical irritants on me and watch Parks and Rec and look at pictures of like puppies and TikToks of cats. That kind of lifestyle takes a toll. Most people don't have to get into pajamas and zone out on cat TikToks just to feel healthy again. I asked Jordan and Robin how they got to this place in their lives. I was a very annoying child and very weirdly political for having pretty apolitical parents. As I grew up, I got a little bit more online, a little bit angrier. And then like I went out of my way to make friends with people that I felt had similar values to me. As those people got involved in organizing and I could see like the purpose that they had found in it, I started to want that too. Choosing to dedicate your free time to try and make the world better, I found that really empowering. And so I tried to seek that out through a few different things that ended up really liking the people here. For me, I wasn't really interested in politics, but was helping a friend with a project, like a group in the state that was lobbying for marriage equality back when- That was my first thing too. Yeah, that's an entry point for a lot of folks. And then when marriage equality eventually passed throughout the country was like, really profoundly moving in a way that I was not expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be like a to-do list that had been checked off, but like seeing when the paradigm shifts and when the cultural attitude and cultural conversation goes more towards reducing harm and creating equality and ending marginalization I did not expect it to be such a profoundly physical and spiritual experience that it becomes pretty addictive and it becomes something that like you can find your community doing this work and you know that regardless of it, somebody that you would hang out with at the bar or call about a bad day that you're unified by the profound purpose of just wanting someone somewhere to feel safer and more welcome in the place they call home. Being in Rose City Antifa is a little bit like having a secret identity. In fact, Robin and Jordan are pseudonyms, and they describe how having this undercover part of their lives can make them feel a little bit different from their friends who aren't in this anti-fascist activism. Like, I have friends who, over the pandemic, took up gardening and embroidery, and I made more time for looking at Nazis' telegram channels. Oh, yeah. So I could see all of their memes about terrible shit. That's not fun. There are a lot of things I would rather do. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, the bars are closed. I can help write that zine about violent fascist street gangs that have been terrorizing people for decades. Hot dog. Like, (laughs) that's just what our life is. But, yeah. Being part of an anonymous group can make dating a little awkward. When exactly do you explain to a new love interest how you're spending all your free time? I think one of the worst parts of this work is because we can't talk about it super openly, like coming across as a boring person. That really sucks when people are like, oh, what do you do with your time? And you're like, nothing. Nothing, I don't do anything with so my time. Like how many dates, how many months in before you're like, okay, actually, yeah. I, I think it just, like, depends on, like, where people are at. Yeah. And, like, the way that you can communicate about, like, other intimate things. Of course, when you're building intimacy with someone, like, there are a lot of things, that, like, information that you would trust them with that you don't want them to go, like, 
blabbing at whatever social engagement they're gonna get to next. So in some ways, like, this work is, like, also a part of that, okay, I can trust you with this, I can trust you with that, and now I can tell you I'm going to a meeting and seeing how that lands. I lived with my partner already and was already with them when I joined, so they knew from the beginning, but I live with roommates and I didn't tell them until after a full year and some change. They just thought I I was very social with a lot of friends all the time. Which is not wrong. You are social with a lot of friends. We just also have very focused activities when we're together. Yeah. After a quick break, Robin will tell us what they absolutely do not want to hear on a first date. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, we're back. As we heard, being in Row City Antifa can become a big part of someone's life because of the secrecy around the group. When we sat down with Antifa members Robin and Jordan, Bruce Grant Irving asked how being in the group can affect a person's social life. Did activism becoming cool change the, like, the ability to talk about it in either way? Oh, I don't want to talk about it at all now that it's cool. Same. Absolutely not. If I'm just, like, getting drinks with some cutie and, like, out the gate, they're like, and I am an activist. I'm like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> like I think, and that is not to say that people shouldn't be, like, proud of the work that they're doing or want to connect over that work, that's just a part of being a human. But I think that we are in this work to like such a degree that if we're having drinks with some cutie, I want to talk about- Literally anything uh, else. Literally anything else. Just like, I think a quick bit of context when we start doing this, like we're told eight to 10 hours a week at least. And it's almost always more than that. Oh yeah. And I think after a certain point, I'm just like, I'm tired. Please tell me about what you're sewing or what you baked yesterday. Because we come to this work out of feeling just so compelled to complete this work. Like feeling like if we were not able to do it, then we wouldn't know where to put a lot of this energy. So sometimes it's hard for me to relate to people who like don't have that kind of like frantic energy that like something is wrong and we have to build something better. But yeah, like what Jordan was saying, I also don't want to talk about organizing all the time. It's, it is a palate cleanser sometimes to like be also in community with people who find joy and connection in other things. Yeah. So while it is sometimes hard to like be on a casual date and hear that people don't feel that like drive and that energy to like really make their world a better place. I think I come from my own organizing story of not really feeling compelled to do those things until someone 
loved me enough and loved the world around them enough to say, you belong here too. You belong in this work and you have something to give. Do you view your relationship like with other versus Antifa members, other anti-fascists, like closer to coworkers and friends? Some of them are friends, some of them are just coworkers. Yeah, the latter. I think I have plenty of people that I am friends with in this group. We're friends. And there are also people that like, we work really well together and we have a lot of mutual respect and trust, but we don't really connect on like a friendship level. And that's just like a different kind of relationship. Not good or bad, just different. Yeah. So yeah, I think like there are people like that's what like a comrade is versus a friend is so that you can trust this person and you know that they will have your back and that you guys can collaborate and make something together. I love everyone that's in this group. I love them, yeah. but I'm not like necessarily friends with everyone. And we haven't developed that closeness. Yeah, but I would drive any one of them to the airport. Yeah, I would help them move. Yeah, absolutely. So but maybe that a is a friend. I think that anybody in the group I would be able to rely on if I had a rough experience with something having to do with the work. I think that we can really rely on each other a lot in those ways. Sometimes people have like rough days or like they're having a rough time at work. They've been through a surgery, like things aren't going so well with their kids or their parents or things like that. And that is part of the the function in a community and like part of building the world that we want to see. Grant had one question for Robin and Jordan that they basically just laughed at. Somebody told me yesterday that Antifa has a 20-year plan. Care oh, to oh, I would like to see that 20-year plan. <laughs> that would probably make our day-to-day a lot easier. This Antifa's 20-year plan is eventually I'd like to own a house. Oh, bless your heart, <laughs> yeah. economy. I'd like to have more dogs. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> It would be great if in 20 years we didn't have to do this anymore. <laughs> that is yeah. not realistic, but it would be fantastic. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for the interesting questions. Have ever asked you about the dating stuff before? No, never. <laughs> uh-uh. That's, this spinoff is just going to be activist dating. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was actually my Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Hass, and me, Sergio Olmos. This episode was produced and written by Maria Luisa Tucker. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Equitola. Member support makes all the podcasts and journalism you rely on from Oregon Public Broadcasting possible. Help ensure the next important story is covered, invest in stories that begin in the Pacific Northwest, and reverberate throughout the country. Join in as a sustaining member now at opb.org pod. Thank you for your support. Thank you.